0: I'm Carly Fiorina, and this is By Example. Lori Gottlieb is a therapist, best-selling author, and columnist. In her most recent book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, she details the stories of a few of her clients as well as her own experience in therapy after a difficult breakup. I've never had a therapist on this podcast before. And it's interesting. We come from two very different worlds. And yet in her own language, she describes precisely why I say ditch the plan in my new book, Find Your Way. In our conversation, we also talk about the importance of honesty, authenticity, and vulnerability in leadership and relationships. We talk about the necessity to challenge oneself, to be with people different than ourselves, and also how to have empathy in situations where maybe it would be easier just to punch back. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Lori Gottlieb. Well, welcome, Lori. I'm so excited uh, to have you on By Example, and I have to say, you're my first therapist on this podcast, so thank you for joining us. Well, I'm happy
1: to set the precedent. Thank you for having me. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, And, you know, to remind our listeners, one of the things that we do in By Example is lift up leaders who, by their example, demonstrate some of the most important characteristics and qualities of leadership. I don't believe that leaders are defined by their position or their title. And that's one of the reasons why we have people from all walks of life, all kinds of people, people in all kinds of circumstances. The thing that binds them together is that they have demonstrated some essential qualities of leadership. Um, I've never had a therapist on before, but as our regular listeners know, one of the really important things we talk about that all great leaders possess is empathy for others, humility about themselves, courage in difficult circumstances. And you have obviously demonstrated all those things, not just in your life, but also in your book. Maybe you should talk to someone and in your advice columns every week. So thank you so much for being on By Example. My pleasure. You know, you and I have uh, some things in common. Um, One of them is that we're both women, and so therefore, uh, one of the things we both have in common is we've encountered some, shall we say, obnoxious or sexist or clueless or thoughtless behavior along the way. My first business meeting, uh, when I had just started out in the business world, was held in a strip club. And I was very angry at my colleague for putting me in that position. But over time, I found empathy for him. Uh, And we turned out to be very good teammates. And I recently ran across a story that you told of encountering some sexist behavior. But you managed to find some empathy in the situation as well. Can you tell our listeners about that?
1: Yes, yes. Um, Yeah, so I, I had a patient who came in and... Um, he told me that he didn't want his wife to know that he was in therapy. So he was going to just pay me with this wad of cash at the end of the session. And he said, you'll be just like my mistress. And if that wasn't bad enough, he then said, actually, you're not the kind of person I choose as a mistress more like my hooker. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Um, and, and, you know, a lot of people said, well, why Why would you see him? Why would you take him on as a patient um, under those circumstances? And I think that partly the way that people behave is informed by, by um, you know, it's informed by the culture, certainly, but it's also informed by what they're trying to protect themselves from. And in this case, this was a person who was very, very successful um, and a very high achieving person who... Um, was very kind of beloved out in the world but didn't really want anybody to get close to him in a one-on-one context and that's exactly what therapy is and so that was his way of distancing himself from me so I think that you know I I took him on because I, I wanted to understand more about what was underlying that behavior because I knew there was going to be something that he would grow from by understanding it more too.
0: It's so interesting because um, one of the things that I talk about in uh, my own book, Find Your Way, is how often people's fears just get in their way completely, and sometimes those fears are foolish, (laughs) sometimes they're profound, Um, but obviously you deal with a lot of patients who are afraid of something in the particular case of this uh, patient you were describing he was afraid of getting close to someone when you realize what some of your patients fears are how do you help them overcome those fears because without overcoming our fears we never can uh, unlock our own potential or live our best life
1: Yeah, that's a really important point. We always like to say that insight is the booby prize of therapy, meaning that you can have all the awareness in the world about why you behave the way you behave, what your fears are. But if you don't make changes out in the world, the insight is useless. So you can say, oh, now I understand why I have this fear or that I have this fear. Um, But if you don't do something to address it and make tangible changes out in the world, it doesn't matter that you understand it. You're still going to be trapped by however that fear holds you back. And I think that the reason people have so much trouble addressing their fears has to do with shame, that people, in their view, people may perceive them as weak or they don't want to show their vulnerabilities. And so many times I see a gender difference around this, too, where you know, men will come in and they'll say, I've never told anybody this before. And then what they tell me seems very mild to me. You know, it's interesting that that's the thing that they are so ashamed of, that that's something they're so scared of. But women will come in and say, I've never told anybody this before, except for my mother, my sister and my best friend. Right. <laughs> so so they, they maybe, you know, feel a little bit more able to, to share something that feels vulnerable, but there's still a lot of shame around it. And I think we hide our fears, um, because we feel so much shame around them.
0: Yeah. It's an interesting word, shame. And I, I think, uh, we absolutely hide our fears. I work with people who are striving to be better leaders or build more effective teams or to be a more effective team member. And I see um, fear as well, where people think, you know, I'm not actually going to apply myself to fixing a problem or changing the order of things for the better because of What people will say about me or, you know, they'll criticize me or I'll make a mistake or I won't look perfect. And I've been curating this image uh, for so long that I can't walk away from it. And so um, it's so interesting how the fears of how others may perceive us tend to be
1: incredibly powerful and hold us back. That's true. And the irony of that is that when people see who we really are, they admire us more, they respect us more, they connect with us more. So, so many times the very thing that we're hiding from people is the very thing that would draw people toward us and make us more appealing. But instead, we kind of, you know, keep our distance. We, we hide behind this veil of perfectionism. And because we we want people to perceive us as, as being, um, you know, very, very competent just because you struggle doesn't mean that you're not competent. It means that you are challenging yourself and that's admirable. You should be challenging yourself.
0: It's so, it's so well said and it's so true. And, uh, you know, if we don't challenge ourselves, then we don't grow, On the other hand, if you challenge yourself, you're going to fall short sometimes. And understanding that, uh, I think, is key to people who really both connect and who are highly functioning. Yep, I'm going to challenge myself. Yep, it's not always going to work out, but yep, I'm going to grow if I challenge myself.
1: That's right. And it's funny because we tell our kids that, you know, we're very comfortable saying to our kids, you will learn from failure, you will learn from making mistakes, your mistakes are a way of teaching you something and it will lead you in another direction, right? It'll help you to think about something in a new way. Um, it will help you to grow and, and be more resilient and, and learn something. So we want our kids to, to, you know, be able to take risks in that way, because that's, that's how you achieve things is by taking risks. But when we're adults, we lose that capacity. We lose that freedom in our own minds. Nobody else feels that way. We just feel that way about ourselves. So we'll tell anybody, we'll tell our colleagues, go ahead, take risks. We want you to take risks, but we won't take our own advice.
0: Well, and so often in an organizational setting, you're, of course, exactly right. So often in an organizational setting, you know, people in an organization will say, yes, yes, we want risk-taking and innovation. And I always say, well, then you need to tolerate mistake-making. And people think, well, I want the risk, but I don't want any mistakes. And you can't have one without the other. And then, of course, there are all these, sadly, helicopter parents who... Tell their kids to take risks, but don't really want them to take any risks. Let me try and make it better for you.
1: Yeah, that's right. And of course, then what happens is these kids don't know what to do when inevitably, as as humans struggle, right? That's just part of the human condition. Um, they're going to try to cover that up as adults, or they're just going to stay in their comfort zone and never stretch themselves and that leads to a lot of lack of fulfillment in life not just professionally but personally if you don't stretch yourself you live a very kind of you know boring life there there's there's no challenge there's no passion um and and I don't think that anybody wants that for their kids or for themselves
0: yes and yet we we allow our the voices in our head about what people are going to think if we make a mistake (laughs) or if we fall short, we allow those voices in our head sometimes to have too much space in our lives.
1: Yeah. In my therapy practice, I see a lot of people who struggle with that. Um, You know, they, they are very, very successful and they are so afraid of somebody seeing you know, a mistake or something that they tried, but it wasn't as successful as you know everything else that they've done, um, and they 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 very much don't want anybody to know about that. And I think the problem is nobody's talking about it because everybody has that happen in their lives, and. People cover it up so much that when it happens to you, you think you're the only one. You think no one else has experienced that or no one else who's, you know, reached my level of whatever your level is um, in whatever field you're in. Um, Nobody else has has had that happen to them. And yet they have. It's just that nobody's sharing it.
0: So true. And you write also, Lori, about the importance of, in fact, you said in your book that one of your perhaps most important credential is being a member of the human race. And you talk uh, so much about the power of connection, the importance of connection, the impact of collaboration. Talk a little more about that.
1: We really grow in connection with other people. It's very hard to be your best whether that's professionally or personally if you're in your own bubble that you need to see yourself reflected through the lens of somebody else so in therapy we hold up a mirror to people and we say i want you to see your reflection and i want you to look at yourself in a way that maybe you're not so comfortable doing i think if we don't do that out in the world where we get input from other people um, then we don't get, there, there's no freshness to our ideas, but also we don't see ourselves clearly. So we may, you know, we all have blind spots. And I think sometimes we keep shooting ourselves in the foot over and over and ending up in the same place and not realizing why. And, and if you're working with other people or just in relationships, if you're hearing what other people have to offer you in terms of feedback, um, you're going to learn a lot about yourself and maybe understand how to move beyond something where you feel stuck.
0: It's so interesting that you use the phrase, hold up a mirror. And obviously that's what you're doing as a therapist. Uh, When I work with teams in all kinds of organizations, I say one of the most important things in order to actually make things better and solve problems that have festered and achieve more is to hold up a mirror see the truth, speak the truth so that we can act on the truth. And it's interesting to me, of course, personally, we don't always see the truth or speak the truth, and therefore we can't act on the truth. But it's true in organizations of all kinds as well, where people will complain about a problem, talk about a problem, gossip about a problem, but they'll actually never get around to fixing it. Maybe because it's too scary to try, but frequently because they won't actually see it clearly enough to understand where they really are. And if you don't know where you are as an individual or as a team, then you can't get better, actually.
1: Right. And so many times people don't see their own role in the situation. So they spend a lot of time, you know, it's much easier to see other people's role in the oh, situation. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, so they can tell you in great detail and, and, and accurately, by the way, you know, what another person might be doing that's contributing to the problem. But the, they can't see what they might be doing that's contributing to the problem because they don't have the vantage point of being outside their own life. They're too close to it. Um, And so it's very easy to talk about externally what is happening, but it's much harder to look at, what am I doing? Um, You know, even if I'm not causing the problem, is my response to the problem exacerbating the problem? Could I respond differently? Could I respond in a more productive way?
0: It's so interesting. I laugh because uh, one of the things I frequently say, I'm sure this is not approved therapist speak, but I say, you know, everybody talks about change. Everybody talks about change. And organizations want change and teams want change. Everybody wants positive change. I said, change is like heaven. Everyone wants to go there. Nobody wants to die. Which <laughs> is to say, the reason I say it that way is because everyone, you're exactly right. Everyone talks about it. But then when you get right down to it, It's no, no, no. They have to change. They need to do something different. It's not me. I'm okay. If everybody just would do what I'm doing and be all right, they need to change. And I don't care whether, again, it's an individual, a team, an organization, people will resist the change that is necessary for them to make in order to make the situation better while pointing a finger at what everyone else needs to do. And that's also why so often problems fester between people uh, and in organizations.
1: I talk a lot about why change is so hard and maybe you should talk to someone because what people don't realize is that with change, even positive change, even change that theoretically you want to happen, there, there's loss because it's so much easier to cling to the familiar than to say, I have to do something differently. And you, you, you go into this place of uncertainty, right? Because even if the familiar is unpleasant or even downright miserable, at least you know what it is. But if you make change, you're going to go into a place of uncertainty. And I think humans have a lot of trouble with uncertainty. Um, you know, it, it's very anxiety provoking. So I think that what happens is a lot of people will come into therapy and say, Um, You know, my partner needs to change. My boss needs to change. My colleague needs to change. Right. Um, And they don't look at what they need to do to change. And that's the harder part. But it's also the most liberating part, because once you can see what you need to do to change and you can take that leap into the unknown and say, I'm going to try something different, even though it feels like it's a little bit outside of my comfort zone, Um, Once you take responsibility for your own part in the situation, so much can happen.
0: Well, and it's such a um, wonderful reminder, everything that you just said about why the status quo is so powerful. The status quo is incredibly powerful, even if people are deeply dissatisfied with it. I mean, I see this in our clients and organizations all the time. And one of the things that, I say is if you're going to change something for the better, you need the catalyst of leadership, which is an individual, forget their title, never mind their circumstances, who, to your point, can see clearly what
1: they need to change and can help others change as well. And also when you change, you influence Other people's change, meaning it's like people do a dance, right? And if one person changes the dance steps, the other person involved in that is either going to have to change his or her dance steps too, or fall flat on the floor, which they don't want to do or they'll leave or they'll leave the dance floor, which in, in some cases might be what needs to happen. But nothing will change if you don't change the dance steps, that if you stay involved in the same dance that you're doing with this person, it's just going to continue indefinitely.
0: One of the other interesting things um, that I've observed in my life and career is that teams that are made up of people that are different from each other, truly diverse teams, always perform at a higher level. And yet, Most organizations don't do very well at building diverse teams because we're all kind of most comfortable with people just like us. But I've learned that if you can put together a team where people truly challenge each other, are truly different from one another, not only is there much better holding up that mirror that we just talked about, but people learn better. They achieve more. Um, How do you think about that in your in your practice? Do you encourage people to seek out people that are different than themselves? Do you agree with me that people who are different than us challenge us differently, but then we so often achieve more because we're challenged differently?
1: Yeah, definitely. I I think that when people come into me and say, everyone that I've talked to says this, so therefore I'm right, right, about whatever problem it is, I say, ask different people. There you go, because it's groupthink. Um, yep. You know, it's it's like you you're proving your case with uh, the jury has already made its decision. You know, <laughs> there there was no there was no thought that went into it. I, I talk in the book about the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion, and I think that's related to this. Um, in idiot compassion, our friends will say, "Don't you think that so and so was wrong when they did this to me?" And your friends will say, or, or the people who are just like you will say, yes, absolutely, you're right. But wise compassion is where someone says, I want you to look at this from a different perspective. And I think diversity offers us wise compassion. It offers us the perspective of people who may see something that we can't see because our, our vision is limited when everybody else is, is so similar to us.
0: It's so true. And, you know, in the business setting, um, one of the things that I am disappointed by is how little progress we've made, actually. I was the first CEO of a Fortune 50 company, but here we are all these many years later, and we've made a lot of progress in some ways. And yet in other ways, you know, there are more CEOs named James in the Fortune 500 than there are women. So, And one of the reasons for that, I think, is businesses haven't yet understood that diverse teams are more effective teams. We tend to talk about diversity as sort of a set of rules and we need to respect each other and be nice to each other. And of course, all that's true. But I think if people understood the power of wise compassion, to use your terms, the power of someone seeing something differently and how much more effective a team is when that happens, we actually would have made much more progress.
1: That's true. And I think it goes back to that question of change, too, because I think that when you have diversity, people are going to propose things um, that are different from the way, quote unquote, things have always been done. And I think that people get scared of that. On the one hand, they're excited by it because they can see the value of it. But on the other hand, they feel very entrenched in the way things have always been done, and they're afraid to make changes. And I think with diversity comes the potential for great change in a really positive way. But that's also scary, I think, to the people who are resistant to change.
0: Yes, absolutely right. Uh, It must have been, uh, speaking of change, um, it must have taken courage for you to write this book. Um, You obviously are wisely compassionate about so many of the people that you talk about in this book, but you also are very courageous and humble in telling your own experience uh, about your own uh, therapy after a painful chapter in your life. Why did you feel that? this book was the time and the place to share your story. And what were you trying to achieve?
1: Well, originally I was under contract to write a book about happiness and the happiness book was making me miserable. <laughs> <Ironically>. <laughs> I'm not happy um, because I was, I was starting out as a therapist and I felt like it just couldn't capture the richness and the reality of, of you know, people's real lives, and I think going back to what you were saying about people being afraid to share their vulnerabilities, I felt like, first of all, happiness as a byproduct of living your life a certain way is great, and we all aspire to that, but happiness as an end goal in itself is almost a recipe for disaster. And so I really wanted to bring people into the therapy room and not write about happiness, but write about the ways that we can transform through this process of connection. And so I was originally going to follow these four patients that I follow in the book. But then I thought, you know, I was going through this upheaval in my own life at the same time. And if they were going to be so vulnerable in the book that it would almost be disingenuous for me to be the expert up on high and not show that I I am a card-carrying member of the human race and, and how that is valuable, how my humanity is my most valuable tool as a therapist. So I bring people, I become the fifth patient and I bring people into the therapy room where I'm undergoing my own therapy as well.
0: Well, it obviously uh, resonated deeply. It's a marvelous book. It's a best-selling book. Uh, It's interesting. You know, uh, we're supposed to write a book on happiness. One of the things I say in Find Your Way is we get very hung up on a plan, a destination in our culture. And we sort of set up these list of questions, uh, things that have to happen. Well, I have to get married by this point. I have to make this much money by this point. I have to, you know, have this perfect life. And then I'm going to be happy. We set up this if, then, if, then, all around some destination, some plan, some happiness goal. Um, And I tell people, ditch the plan, you know?
1: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) We're we're very bad at predicting what's going to make ourselves happy also, um, you know, we think that something will make us happy, but it, it doesn't always work out that way. It, it, happiness comes from a, a sense of purpose. When you wake up a sense of fulfillment and having meaning in your life and having connections that are meaningful to you in your life. So, um, you know, I, I was treating in the book, uh, there's this woman who's a newlywed and she's dying of, of cancer. And, um, and she says, you know, I noticed that everybody plans for the future and her future at that point was very limited. And she said, you know, in three years, I'll buy a house or at this point, I'll apply for that new job or whatever it is. And she said, what are people waiting for? Do you really need a terminal diagnosis to go after what you want? So I think that people can try to plan out their lives in a certain way, but life throws its curveballs. And if you really want something, I loved her question, what are you waiting for? Yes. Well,
0: it's, I've seen people who have mapped out their whole lives from a career perspective. And one of three things happens frequently to people like that. They might make it, you know, they might get to whatever they were after, but they've sacrifice so much along the way that they are not at all who they should be once they get there. Uh, Or they get there and it's not at all what they thought, to your point of we can't always predict what makes us happy. You know, they get there. It's like, wow, is this all there is? I mean, this is what I was striving all this time for. Or they never get there at all. And then, you know, they've set themselves up to perceive their lives as a failure because their whole life was organized around this destination, this goal.
1: Yeah, there's such a narrow view in that last case of, you know, what will make them happy. Um, And then if they if they have that one, sort of all their eggs in that one basket, and that doesn't happen, they have it, a big crisis of identity. Who am I? What is my worth? What is my value? What does this mean about me? Because they didn't consider other possibilities. It's almost like a failure of imagination.
0: Yes, I think that's so true. And let's dig a little bit deeper if we can on this uh, notion of connection. Um, leaders always collaborate. Um, I say all the time. Um a leader would never say, I alone can fix it, never. It's just not how leaders think. Leaders connect, leaders collaborate. Um, And you, for example, in your book, you collaborate with other therapists, not only to to see yourself more clearly, but to get different ideas. And you presumably are helping your patients become not only more connected, but as a result, better collaborators.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize that as therapists, we are alone in the room with our patients, but that doesn't mean that we don't work on a team. So most therapists belong to consultation groups where we meet weekly and discuss our cases to get feedback because we can always benefit from hearing someone else's perspective. Um, You know, in this moment, I was stuck or in this moment, here's what happened. What do you think? And often somebody who wasn't in that room will give me a very good idea to come back with the next week and vice versa.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting. I think you're right. I think most people would not assume that therapists think of themselves as part of a team. Uh, And yet, I don't care how smart each one of us are. We can't figure it out all by ourselves.
1: That's right. And I think the other value of having collaborators is that they also reflect back to you what you're doing well. And I think feedback is both things. It's what you're doing well and what you could be doing better. And you can't have one component without the other. Um, If you're just hearing what you're doing well, you're not growing. And if you're just hearing what you could be doing better, you're not getting, um, I think it's not being reinforced, the things that you are doing well so that you can keep doing those. Um, So, you know, when you're when you're in a room with a patient, nobody's saying that was a great intervention at the 20 minute mark.
0: (laughs) Um, (laughs) In fact, they might not like it, even though it was a great intervention. Right,
1: right. Um, You know, so but but your colleagues can say that that was I I liked what you did there. That was smart. And here's why. And that helps you grow, too, so that you you you're not working in a vacuum. I don't think any of us do our best work in any profession um, working in a vacuum. So you
0: obviously think, uh, and we've talked about, empathy being so important and humility and seeing yourself clearly in the mirror and collaboration and change. You're also a very funny person. And um, you clearly, I would imagine, bring humor into your uh, therapy room as well. Talk a little bit about humor and why that also is important to live in life. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think it's it's crucial. Um, it's really important to be able to laugh at ourselves and laugh at sometimes the situation and and just you know the ways in which we can um, you know not be so self-critical. One of the things I notice with my patients is how unkind they can be to themselves. I had somebody write down everything she said to herself for a few days and she came back the next week and she was so embarrassed she said I'm a bully to myself um, you know the ways that we would never talk to a friend that way or a colleague that way um, the self-criticism the the not giving ourselves the benefit of the doubt um, we need to be able to be more kind to ourselves and I think part of that is humor part of it is being able to say, You know, it's, it's funny when we make, you know, when we, when we do things that, that we, you know, that aren't perfect, um, we can laugh at ourselves. And I think it's important to laugh at the human condition, to laugh at ourselves, to allow others to laugh at themselves, um, because then we feel more comfortable taking risks. And we know that if something goes wrong, it's going to be okay. And we will learn from it and do better. It's a
0: wonderful recipe for humor, and and uh, you are so right. We we get. Uh, I mean, it's a serious world, you know, and there are serious issues. And sometimes it's just a relief to be able to laugh at a situation, at ourselves, and laugh with others about the situation we perhaps put ourselves in.
1: And, and laughter is a way of saying it's a way of connecting. It's a way of saying. I understand you, you understand me. Um, we can share this joint um, moment together of humor because we both see something from a similar perspective and it, it makes people feel good um, to feel understood. I think and especially in the workplace, people are so worried about their performance that sometimes they don't take the time to understand somebody else. And then you know that's where a lot of I think things go that's where things go wrong.
0: So true. So true. So, Laurie, as we wrap up here, you know, you've talked so eloquently about happiness comes from a life of purpose and meaning. I speak all the time about what everyone actually strives for is a life of dignity and purpose and meaning and connection. It's so true. And I must say that I worry that there's so much in our culture today, much of it uh, exaggerated by technology that sends a whole different set of messages. We tend to lift up the superficial. Uh, criticism is magnified a thousand times. I'm often asked to give a piece of advice or two to young people. If I asked you to give some advice to young people in this day and age, what might you say?
1: There's this chapter in the book called The Speed of Want. And when I was an intern, I... Um, my supervisor saw a bunch of us, we were sort of rushing through and, you know, couldn't wait to get to the next level. And we're just obsessed with, with you know, how we were performing. And she said, you know, the speed of light is outdated. Today, everybody moves at the speed of want. And it sort of stopped us in our tracks. Um, that I think when you move at the speed of want, You might be getting somewhere or it might seem like you're getting somewhere, but you're going to feel very empty inside and you can't live the kind of life that you want to live in terms of not only achievement and success, but personal fulfillment as well, if you feel empty inside. So I would really encourage younger people to say, take some time to connect. See who you're connecting with the people that you're meeting now in your 20s. Are the people that you want to form relationships with that will last you throughout your career and your and your personal life as well these are the people who are going to be meaningful to you take time to nurture those relationships they will they will pay back something to you in ways that you can't see right now even 20 years or 30 years down the line Lori, you are a very wise
0: woman And I am really delighted that you spent some time with us on By Example today. You've not only demonstrated leadership yourself, but you've just given us 30, 35 minutes of what others can do, not just to be more fulfilled in their lives, but also to be more effective leaders. Thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on what is a fantastic book. Maybe you should talk to someone.
1: Thank you so much. It was my pleasure.
0: That's all for now. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can visit CarlyFiorina.com or iTunes for more episodes. And make sure you subscribe to By Example so you never miss an episode. To receive updates and exclusive offers, text BYEXAMPLE Example to 345-345. And while you're at it, you can send us feedback on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Carly Fiorina, or by email at byexample at carlyfiorina.com. As always, thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Carly Fiorina, and this is By Example.